0: I'm Ian Black. I'm a Visiting Senior Fellow at the uh, Middle East Centre. Um, the, uh, the events are going to take place on the uh, in the following way, Madawi is going to talk for about uh, 15 to 20 minutes, leaving the rest of the time for uh, Q&As and discussion. If you would like to ask a question, uh, please type your question into the Q and A box at the bottom of your screen. We will then address the um, uh, the questions to the speakers. If you would like to tweet about these, uh, this event, you can use the hashtag uh, ha- LSE Middle East. Um, welcome to Madawi. Uh, she's a visiting uh, professor at the uh, uh, LSE Middle East Centre, a fellow of the Uh, British Academy. Since joining the Middle East Center, Madawi has been conducting research into um, uh, research on mutations amongst Saudi Islamists after the 2011 Arab uprising. Um, This research uh, focuses on the new interpretations of Islamic texts prevalent among a small minority of Saudi reformers and their activism in the pursuit of of democratic governance and civil society. The result of this research project, which is sponsored by the Open Society uh, Foundation Fellowship Programme, appeared in a monograph entitled Muted Modernists, Salman's Legacy, the Dilemmas of a New Era, was also um, published by Hearst in 2018. Uh, over to you, uh, Mazawi. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ian, and uh, thank you, the Middle East Centre for organising this uh, event and uh, this look, uh, book launch uh, at a very difficult time in London. Uh, Ian, and the book um, uh, really talks about the last five years in Saudi Arabia, And I started uh, that book as uh, uh, King Salman uh, became king. And I was doing the research up to like 2017, 2018, uh, when I noticed that there is a fundamental contradiction in going on in Saudi Arabia. I noticed that um, the outside world and the Saudi media were actually presenting us with um, a kind of uh, dramatic transformation or the expectation of a transformation in Saudi Arabia. So at the time there was a lot of talk um, about reform, about creating modern Saudi Arabia, about promoting moderate Islam, about empowering women, opening the economy, diversification, Even selling 5% of uh, Aramco, the oil company, floating it in international markets. So everything looked really uh, uh, rosy uh, if you surveyed at the time the pages of the American, British, and the uh, global media. But at the same time, I was uh, also monitoring and Uh, the the development inside Saudi Arabia which were beginning to become extremely shocking from the detention of princes, uh, the um, uh, detention of uh, (laughs) a whole range of activists, of professionals, journalists, including the ones who had been very close to the regime in Saudi Arabia. At the same time, I noticed that women who are supposed to be freed from the chains of the guardianship system, uh, allowed to uh, travel, allowed to drive cars, that was all happening. But at the same time, the nascent Saudi feminist movement was experiencing hardship young women who had fought for the right to drive, who had campaigned for the leadership system to be lifted or uh, 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 modified found themselves in prison. So I thought that there is a contradiction. There is a duality between reform and repression. And I began to read the literature on this kind of situation in other countries. And I noticed that many commentators on the Middle East Uh, and specifically on the Arab world and Saudi Arabia presented ideas that Saudi society is economically lazy, religiously conservative or radical, um, and unwilling to engage in any kind of reform except from above. And this reminded me of a kind of orientalist position which says that People in this region, specifically in the Arabian Peninsula, they're not up to uh, demanding democracy or uh, enjoying uh, life in a democratic system with freedom of expression, freedom of association, and also uh, uh, national representation in a parliament or an elected council. So all these kinds of... um, Uh, ideas had to be confronted using important um, primary sources uh, based on interviewing Saudis, uh, based on uh, uh, written documents in order to understand why this contradiction. And I found that Saudi society uh, is actually ready for quite a lot of the changes that had taken place. In fact, important Saudis had uh, demanded the same reforms that Mohammed bin Salman uh, introduced, but he preferred to uh, attribute them to to himself and lock the reformers who had called for this reform. So the book uh, sums up that journey of the last five years. And in the book, I try to look at, uh, 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 in one chapter, at the history of Saudi Arabia that Mohammed bin Salman tries to uh, 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 reform and also reverse. So in one of the chapters I I look, uh, the introductory chapters, I look at how Saudi Arabia came into (inaudible) becoming Saudi Arabia. (inaudible) And as such, um, I looked at the uh, key events that had taken place in the 20th century, such as, for example, the mobilization of religion, the Wahhabi movement uh, in the formation of the state, the 1950 struggle between the monarchies of the region and the nationalist, leftist, anti-imperialist forces, the engagement of Saudi Arabia in that struggle, struggle and also the arrest and detention of Saudi activists. Then I look at the Islamist opposition and what it offered as an alternative to the previous wave of of, uh, contestation. And that brought me to the Arab uprising, which was a key event in the imaginary of Saudis and Arabs in general, 2011. And and then I linked that to the rise of Mohammed bin Salman. Why a young uh, person Uh, uh, the son of the king, and he's not the only son, was chosen. And the conclusion I came uh, to was this, that the Arab uprising was a shock to these monarchies, especially Saudi Arabia. And uh, um, uh, the whole world saw the young Arabs and, and also multiple generations come to the public squares of the the Arab world, asking for dignity, freedom, equality. And Saudis surprisingly responded to that moment. And I think in order to mitigate any further um, um, sort of solidarity and the consequences of having Saudi Arabia witness similar kind of protest, the choice was made that Mohammed bin Salman will be the young reformer who would change everything about Saudi Arabia apart from the absolute monarchy and the authoritarian rule. And this is exactly what happened at the level of the economy, society, religion, uh, uh, cultural traditions, values, and norms. There was a strong reform and change from above as it was projected. But uh, politics remained stagnating. And in fact, it deteriorated. If you look at Saudi Arabia's human rights record uh, during those last five years. Uh, So um, that is the uh, uh, spirit of the book. And I focus uh, um, in a particular way on the, uh, the ideology that was supposed to replace uh, the previous uh, dependence on the Wahhabi movement. As you know, the Wahhabi movement was instrumental in creating the Saudi state, and its ulama and religious scholars were actually the religious intelligentsia of the state. They defended the states, but sometimes they fell out with the states, as, as we all know that history, which I describe in the first chapter. Um, so um, Mohammed bin Salman wanted to distance Saudi Arabia from that uh, uh, idea geological foundation and Saudi Arabia had um, uh, known almost three types of uh, homogenizing narratives that you could call them nationalist narratives the first one was the Wahhabi movement that thought that Arabian society was blasphemous it needed to be homogenized in the pursuit of pure Islam so what the Wahhabia was a kind of religious nationalism The second wave came from the 1960s onward, and that was pan-Islamism as the unifying force by projecting Saudi enthusiasm for Islamic teachings and practices abroad and Islamizing the Muslim world as if the mission had been completed inside Saudi Arabia. And then we come to 9-11 and the contestation with the international community, the pressure that was put on Saudi Arabia. So now we have what, is, uh, what I called a kind of hyper nationalist Saudi narrative to replace all those previous attempts to homogenize the nation and create a kind of unity. But I also show that homogenizing the nation is by its own nature, a divisive project. And like all nationalist projects in the world, there's nothing specific about Saudi Arabia. They tend to divide, they tend to create schisms within the community because as you define the community in rigid historical terms, you're bound to exclude those who do not fit, those who do not belong. And this is exactly what happened in Saudi Arabia. So in one of the chapters, I uh, I discuss diversity and exclusion in Saudi Arabia rather than diversity and inclusion. So I look at the issue of immigrants uh, from all over the world, including Western immigrants uh, or expats as they are uh, referred to. I look at women as a category that is also excluded, but also included in a particular way and in particular form. Uh, so, for example, today, Saudi women are supposed to be the vanguard of this new nation, uh, uh, representing its modernity, representing its future liberal uh, aspects. Uh, I also look at religious minorities, such as the Ismailis in the south and the Shia in uh, in the eastern part of the country. Uh, So in a way, uh, uh, the tribal groups also, how they are included, but at the same time excluded. So the the project of nationalism, I point that it is very dangerous in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, it culminated in the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on the 2nd of October, 2018. As Mohammed bin Salman expected, his fall followers and employees to be to propagate the idea that every citizen is a policeman and they have to catch and report any uh, dissident voices critical opinions, the internet and especially Twitter became the graveyard for uh, any kind of critical voices. So Saud al-Qahtani, one of his aides who was implicated uh, by the UN report on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and implicated in that report, he was one of the vanguards of this new Saudi hyper-nationalist narrative and propagated it on Twitter uh, and asked Saudis enlisted Saudis to become informers and draw black lists uh, so that they could go, uh, the security forces could go and catch them. So we get to that stage, that culmination of Mohammed bin Salman populist, nationalist, um, I think, dark agenda. At the same time, I I, I look at how specific groups in Saudi society um, uh, featured in the last five years and one of the most important category in Saudi society that was rising at the time was the feminist movement. Uh, Saudi Arabia began to have an, a well-defined uh, feminist movement with its own symbols, uh, campaigns and also personalities. Amongst them is detained Luj- Lujain Al-Hudlul uh, and many other academics such as Hatoun Al-Fassi, uh, artists, etc. So I look at why this feminist movement had become a target of uh, uh, detention, abuse, and even torture in prison. Um, and the reason why I uh, think the, nas- the feminist movement has become Uh, or has been defined as a a, a threat, a security threat by the regime is because it was the first attempt to create what I would call national politics that uh, that bypasses uh, sectarian, tribal, class and regional differences. Uh, Also, it brought men under um, their umbrella in order to defend basic rights. And the feminist movement in Saudi Arabia was beginning to uh, go beyond simply rights for women or equality for women and demand bigger human uh, rights and political uh, uh, demands. And therefore uh, it frightened the Saudi regime uh, because its demand were no longer simply uh, by women about women, but it became a national movement. Also the techniques, the strategies they used, they were very efficient in using uh, social media, campaigning, grouping women, and I call them the hashtag generation because they managed to actually uh, uh, spread the world, uh, not only in Saudi Arabia, but beyond. And then the regime uh, was alerted to how dangerous social media is Obviously the regime uh, who is trying to be, to introduce a neoliberal agenda can't block all social media like Twitter. So what um, Mohammed bin Salman did was to create a counter social media, a, a Riyadh farm whose employees are supposed to monitor the media and spread propaganda in order to discredit dissidents, threaten dissidents, spy on dissidents. So this is what was going on in in Saudi society while Western journalists, unfortunately, were praising the reforms of Mohammed bin Salman. And it was only after the murder of Khashoggi in October, 2018, that uh, icons of Western journalism began to realize that maybe they made a mistake and Mohammed bin Salman was not the great reformer they thought he was. Also, I look at a new generation of women who had been leaving the country at a very young age. And remember, this is a society that used to receive immigrants from domestic workers to professionals. And it was the first time in the history of the country whereby we have a phenomena that is called the runaway girls who leave Saudi Arabia, obviously, without permission, Uh, They get stranded in international airports from Istanbul to Philippines to Canada and other places, and they seek asylum. Um, They seek asylum not not always for political reasons, but because of the failure of the regime to protect them from members of their own families, from uh, employees of the state, the shelters that they are threatened to be put in tend to be like prisons rather than a protective environment where these abused women could actually uh, have a a secure and safe life. So uh, I I sort of end the the, the book by looking at how uh, young men are actually part of a rising diaspora that also includes women. So, the theme of uh, a, a central theme in the book is the nascent uh, Saudi diaspora in countries like Canada, the USA, in London, in Britain, in Europe, in Australia, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, and other countries. So, if Mohammed bin Salman is empowering the youth of the country, Why are they leaving? Why are they abandoning the promised land, the opportunities with diversification of the economy, with tolerant Islam, with entertainment industry, with uh, Western pop stars? And so the, the, the promise is that we get to have the new Saudi utopia. And so why are those young men leaving? And so I do a comparative uh, re- study of the old exiles, um, and Saudi Arabia, like all the countries of the Arab world, had known uh, uh, exiles who had left under political pressure, a threat of violence against them by the regime, a detention or pr- imprisonment. So um, they, they. Um, they had been leaving in greater numbers since Mohammed bin Salman came to power. Um, and they differ from the old generation of exiles, especially, for example, the ones who had been settled in London since the nine, early 1990s. I do remember in the 90s. There were um, uh, a group of Shia uh, Islamists who had left after 1979-1980 during the Intifada al-Mantqa al-Sharqiyya, which is the uprising of the eastern province. Uh, after the, uh, uh, um, uh, also the uh, siege of the Mecca mosque, uh, we get a different kind of Islamists who had left. Uh, Saudi Arabia, but quite a lot of them had gone to Afghanistan and joined Bin Laden, didn't come to the West, although some did. Um, so um, uh, the other type of opposition was purely Islamist, such as uh, the uh, well-known names Saad al-Faqih and Muhammad al-Masari, etc. And others who don't come out in their names, but they, they do exist. And, but the new generation of exiles and the diaspora is, is, is diverse uh, is younger, much younger. Some of them uh, are students who had been on scholarships in let's say US or Canada. And then they uh, got too excited about the Arab uprising. They had aspirations about democracy in Saudi Arabia and, and they couldn't go back. So I write the life history of several of those uh, exile uh, exiles in different countries in order to register uh, why they have left when Mohammed bin Salman is actually promising them jobs, uh, new opportunities, and um, uh, infitah, the the openness of culture and society. Um, And um, so you get a spectrum of genders, uh, men and women, spectrum of ideologies in exile, from secularists, I would say, or people who call for democracy, uh, Western style, to Islamists, moderate Islamists who had called for reform, who had not uh, taken arms against the regime, we also find them um, uh, leaving the country. Uh, and people who had been uh, abused uh, within the private sphere, but uh, couldn't find protection by the government, and therefore they decide to leave the double oppression, the double um, uh, uh, aggression of uh, the private and the public. So they had left uh, Saudi Arabia as well. And some of them had uh, gravitated towards um, a human rights organizations, founded their own human rights organization, and grouped together in the diaspora. So the question for me was, what is uh, this? Is the beginning of a, a movement spread across the globe? Um, that can operate in the virtual world, uh, talking to each other, having conversations about the future of the country. And uh, the culmination of this diaspora came in almost like three or four uh, diaspora conferences in London, held in London. uh, And people joined from different parts of the world on a huge screen to talk about their aspirations. I remember in the 1990s, um, when I finished my PhD from Cambridge, moved to London to take a job uh, at Oxford, actually. I walked around the streets of London, and I, I, I could hear Arabs speaking, uh, Egyptian Arabic, uh, many Iraqis as well, uh, uh, Lebanese, Tunisian, North Africans, but I couldn't really find any Saudi exiles. And I, at one moment, I thought I was the only one in town. Um, mm-hmm. But but. Today, uh, there uh, there is a very, very widespread presence of Saudi exiles around the globe, not only in the historical uh, uh, places where they had taken refuge, also not to mention those who are in Turkey at the moment, uh, and in other Arab countries. So the the book uh, looks at all these trends and concludes that a country like, it it is not the destiny of a country like Saudi Arabia to have reform at the expense of human rights, at the expense of suffocating the population with really uh, harsh measures. And the death of Jamal Khashoggi is actually uh, a symbol of that repression, that uh, brutality, that the regime was prepared to go uh, as far as killing someone in a consulate um, uh, in order to maintain uh, its monopoly over uh, uh, the past, the present, and the future.
0: Madawi, thank you so much. Um, We have lots of questions. And uh, I want to exploit my position as uh, chair of this event to ask the first one. Uh, you mentioned, of course, uh, the uh, Khashoggi affair as an example of the, uh, the brutality uh, of the Saudi regime. Um, I couldn't help but notice that um, uh, only yesterday the uh, future uh, director of uh, national intelligence for the Biden administration. In answer to uh, a a very loaded question, uh, answered that um, under Biden, um, the uh, intelligence reports, the American intelligence reports about the uh, Khashoggi affair uh, would be declassified. Do you think that the Saudis, and particularly Mohammed bin Salman, are nervous about that eventuality? And will there be any uh, consequences that would affect the big picture of relations between Riyadh and Washington? Thank you.
1: Yes, I mean, that's an extremely important question. I think if the report is declassified, I think it's, uh, 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 it's a step towards justice, perhaps for Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, but um, we had uh, equally important reports. Remember the UN uh, report and Agnes Calamard, She she published her report by the UN. And... Uh, People uh, in the West, uh, especially Trump at the time, shrugged it off. And, but if it comes from the CIA, perhaps it's incumbent on uh, Joe Biden to act on that. And how would he act? Uh, I have doubts that Joe Biden is um, sort of going to do something completely unusual or turn the clock and go into a regime change mode. I don't think the US, the world, uh, uh, and everybody else are not really ready for that kind of thing. And I think Biden would hesitate. And I think he surrounded himself by advisors who would argue against any kind of military intervention in a country like Saudi Arabia because that is just beyond imagination um, and beyond the real. But what, they, what Biden has at his disposal is other mechanism. For example, deterrence, uh, legal punishments, uh, some kind of sanctions on individuals rather than on the country. And I think his administration, especially those in the State Department, his advisor will be considering those kinds of options because you can't have that CIA report made public and Biden will just shrug it off like um, uh, Trump shrugged off the the evidence that was provided for his Congress and and him about the involvement of Saudi Arabia. So Biden, I think will be under a lot of pressure but I doubt whether he will make any drastic change. Uh, The US is not ready for that kind of uh, decision. It doesn't mean that previous democrats didn't make that decision. I mean Obama authorized uh, participating in NATO strikes on uh, on Libya for example. And frankly, Americans uh, military intervention have a very very bad record in the region and they never actually stabilized the country or created the conditions for democracy. And there that's a different question. We can't go into the details and why this didn't happen, but A short answer to your question is Biden will be under pressure, but I think he will try to manage the relationship and perhaps impose some legal uh, sanctions on individuals in Saudi Arabia, and maybe he will take the decision that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has a choice. Either he uh, changes his behavior, which he began to actually do to to please or show show good signs of transformation, his own transformation or his own reform to Biden. Um, or um, uh, use a deterrent, uh, use the arm sales as uh, a way of putting pressure on Saudi Arabia to behave like a respected member of the international community and have real justice for that uh, brutal crime.
0: Okay, so there's a question from Andrew Rickley. Uh, how likely is it that the significant numbers Uh, number of senior members of the Allegiance Council would oppose uh, the succession of bin Salman to the throne. Does awareness of latent opposition to his current role, which is related to the answer that you've just given, uh, explain his long period out of the public eye in 2020?
1: Well, I mean, almost everybody was out of the public eye. Uh, I mean, the, Mohammed bin Salman thrived on rallies, on attending sports events, on uh, inviting foreign journalists to his, uh, uh, you know, desert retreat, etc. But all that was, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, basically gone now, um, under under the pressure of the pandemic. Now, the Allegiance Council had been toothless, actually, Uh, since uh, the death of King Abdullah. uh, uh, King Salman uh, did not really activate it, did not uh, seek its opinion when he appointed his son as uh, crown prince, but he is yet to to appoint a deputy crown prince, which is a tradition that had started during the reign of King Abdullah, given that two uh, uh, crown princes died while the king was, was, while King Abdullah was still king, which was unusual in Saudi Arabia. But at the moment, King Salman doesn't feel the pressure to, to appoint a deputy crown uh, prince because his son is young. Now, whether the, the allegiance community is, will not be able to challenge any decision, even after <laughs> the death of King Salman, simply because his son, Mohammed bin Salman, amassed so much power, he is um, you know, minister of defense head of uh, the Economic Council. He is also part of the Ministry of Interior. He surveys intelligence. He has his hands on the money in the country. And uh, I think what happened in the Ritz-Carlton sent a very strong message to all the potential candidates or the potential sort of disgruntled princes that if you try to do anything, you know, we can deal with you. Uh, regardless of your proximity to the pure blood of the House of Saud. So you get people like Mohammed bin Nayef, who was the, the darling of Western governments and intelligence because of his uh, work on, uh, during the war on terror and intelligence sharing, completely sidelined. Um, and you have others who had been extremely influential globally, Uh, at least financially, like in Walid bin Talal, put back in his place. You know, you could be making news in New York and your uh, financial empire uh, grows outside Saudi Arabia, but inside Saudi Arabia, you have no right. um, And and they were subjected to ransom money in order to be freed. And some of the princes, especially Mohammed bin uh, Nayef are still under house arrest and nobody reports on them. So what Mohammed bin Salman wants is to have this sort of amnesia curtain on those potential candidates. But frankly, I don't think that any of them um, is capable of staging a coup or challenge to Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, And then if they do, it will be a bloodbath.
0: So um, there's another question about uh, Saudi youth uh, from uh, Fanny Agushu Madsen. You spoke about the Saudi youth being ready, urging for change, development, and political participation. How do you see that more, particularly among the younger generation? Do you think that there is political mobilisation going on underground?
1: At the moment uh, there, uh, there is tension, but it is not manifesting itself in kind of mobilize, uh, real mobilisation. And Mohammed bin Salman has shut uh, uh, social media. At one point around 2011, uh, uh, Twitter was Saudi Arabia's parliament. Everybody participated and the country Mm. has the highest use of Twitter in the whole world. Mm. And people were talking freely, commenting on um, uh, current affairs, uh, talking about policy. But uh, uh, the people who dared to criticize or uh, undermine government policy in all the so-called reforms, whether it's tourism or inviting a Western pop star to Saudi Arabia, they went to prison. I mentioned here, for example, uh Issam al-Zamil, who is an economist, and he just simply um, uh, put some questions uh, in Twitter about the um, uh, viability of uh, uh Uh, floating 5% of Aramco and it was obvious that he was giving his opinion as an economist and how Aramco is the national treasure of the country shouldn't be floated. He is still in prison. Uh, there's also abdul aziz who was an economist and he was a state employee several years ago and he they used to meet uh, in uh, diwaniya in, in kind of literary salons uh, reg- uh, record themselves discussing uh, public events public affairs and he's disappeared as well uh, many journalists had been rounded simply because they pointed to poverty or unemployment. So the situation is uh, now uh, appears, appears uh, quiet and stable, but I think there is fermentation under the surface of dissent especially after since the summer um, new taxes were imposed on the population in the form of uh, vat and the government subsidies to state employees who earn a certain low uh, uh, salary uh, was uh, completely abolished um, so then you get to uh, uh, the problem of oil uh, prices, which were declining since 2014 and COVID, which had put a, a halt to all the grandiose projects of tourism and uh, 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 you know, entertainment industry. And you get a bleak picture, uh, which forces Mohammed bin Salman to draw on the, uh, on, his so- on, on the government sovereign fund. And if you look at the statistic, you see how they were depleted over the last five years. Uh, during Mohammed bin Salman, it was almost like 700 billion. And now we're talking about 400 billion. So all that, it gives me um, uh, the impression that uh, it's a volatile situation, and uh, we may not see a kind of revolution along the Egyptian one or the Tunisian one. But we will definitely see uh, how anger and frustration express themselves possibly in different ways that we haven't seen before. Um, So uh, it is is very, very difficult to predict that by a certain date, Saudi Arabia uh, will rise against Mohammed bin Salman, but there there is a a need for change, political change, not related to driving cars or uh, going to football matches.
0: So there were various questions about uh, the uh, reconciliation with uh, Qatar after the uh, three-year uh, blockade. So, for example, uh, Andrew Weir asks, does the reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Qatar signify that uh, Bin Salman no longer sees the international campaign against the the, Huan, the Muslim Brotherhood, as a top priority? But perhaps you could ask... Uh, yeah. You know, uh, give a a slightly broader answer to that. What what's the significance of the uh, the end of the uh, Qatar blockade?
1: It is important, but um, I think the uh, what has happened so far since signing the uh, um, you know returning Qatar to the fold of the GCC. Uh, It indicates that um, Qatar may take uh, a careful uh, step towards um, neutralizing its many enemies in the region, mainly Uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and I think it has succeeded in in, uh, getting closer ties with Saudi Arabia at the expense of its ties with the UAE that takes a very hard line uh, position against Islamists. Saudi Arabia, as you know, uh, had had, um, a sort of a troubled relationship with Islamism and Islamists in general we all know that they, uh, they use them, cooperated with Islamists to uh, promote Saudi Arabia's interest at home and abroad from, you know, missionaries sent to convert people to the true Islam in Japan and Indonesia and other places to the jihadis in Afghanistan. But Islamism is complex and it consists of multiple trends. So they're not all the same. But in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood, Saudi Arabia still fears the Muslim Brotherhood simply because um, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, adopt a kind of conciliatory tone. They participate in election, but at the same time, they say that democracy and Islam are compatible. So Saudi Arabia fears that. Um, uh, But uh, the Muslim Brotherhood are pragmatic and they had worked with the Saudi regime, promoted the Saudi regime, but sometimes they fell out with the Saudi regime. And it's just politics. There's nothing ideological about that. The Saudis and the Muslim Brotherhood do not have a long lasting love relationship. They work purely on political interests. And today, if the Saudis show some kind of, um, you know, concessions, for example, releasing the Islamist detainees in Saudi Arabia from Sheikh Salman Al-Ouda, who is a, a great reformer, actually, uh, and others who uh, uh, sort of are part of a reformist kind of Islam, then that might give a a good sign that Saudi Arabia is willing to tolerate some kind of Islamism. Um, But the interesting thing is Saudi Arabia actually fears those more than it fears jihadis, because the jihadis use violence and use, you know, sporadic, indiscriminate violence, and it's very easy to turn society against them. But the reformers, um, and which I wrote about them in one of my books, Muted Modernness," they present the Saudis with a nightmare because they don't call for violence. What they call for is political reform. They call for democracy. One of them who is actually exiled in Qatar and has, uh, 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 which I wrote about, um, uh, Muhammad al-Ahmari, he left Saudi Arabia because the Salafis made his life you know, very difficult and he's based in Qatar and he wrote books about democracy, which I included in in my analysis of a reformist trend within Islam. So these are fear in Saudi, the Saudi regime, and especially Mohammed bin Salman, he fears those kind of, I would say moderate Islamists who are willing to tolerate diversity in a Muslim society. They do not want to force people to wear the veil or they do not object to women driving cars. So these kind of Islamists are dangerous as far as the regime is concerned um, and, But the reconciliation with Qatar may not really translate into direct sort of uh, 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 evaporation of Islamism or Qatar uh, 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 cutting its ties with Islamism because let's not forget there is Turkey in the region and it's not all about Qatar. And um, so Mohammed bin Salman tried to make sort of uh, some kind of um, uh, good, good um, intentions made uh, publicly about Turkey and Qatar. So perhaps there is a, a kind of path towards coexistence and I, I wouldn't think that a love relationship will endure between the three uh, uh, young leaders in the Gulf, Tamim of Qatar, Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE and Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia regardless of the kisses and the sort of opulence of the GCC last meeting.
0: So um, there's a, a lot of questions about the uh regional implications of the combination of the Biden administration and uh, Mohammed bin Salman being seen as the de facto ruler of, uh, of the kingdom. Um, so one of those is, do you see uh, Saudi Arabia following the UAE, Bahrain, etc., Sudan, Morocco, obviously, in making uh, peace deal, normalization uh, deal with uh, Israel, and of course abandoning the Palestinians. Do you think that is likely?
1: Yeah, I I don't actually discuss that uh, area in my book, but having followed what's been going on in the region over the last uh, five, four months, uh, I think Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman would hesitate to open relations uh, with Israel. And uh, we're not going to see an Israeli flag raised in Riyadh very, very soon. Um, However, uh, Saudi Arabia continues its relations with Israel. As you know, I remember reading your excellent report uh, on on these kind of uh, clandestine uh, relations and cooperation. So that will continue unless, you know, uh, we see what uh, Biden plans. I think Biden wants to have a two states uh, solution and he sticks with, uh, stuck with it. And whether um, Mohammed bin Salman could get away with murder again in return for real uh, normalization with Israel, we don't know yet. So, um, you know, if Biden keeps quiet about Saudi regional wars in Yemen, um, and maybe the price is that Mohammed bin Salman has to pay is to normalize relations with Israel. But I don't think the regime in Riyadh is going to go as far as the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan. Simply because the, if, if you're sitting in Riyadh, you have to uh, sort of uh, uh, look at the cost and benefit. Mohammed bin Salman prefers to have these hidden clandestine relations because they supply him with technology surveillance etc uh, with Israel and he can cooperate with Israel without uh, having an embassy in Riyadh um, what if the benefit is uh, to to um, uh, you know, score goals in Washington, then he, he might think, well, that's uh, wor- that's worth it. and we will go ahead. But in both cases, I think the Saudi regime is damned if he does, if it does, and damned if it doesn't. Uh, simply because the population, I think, although Mohammed bin Salman has been preparing uh, Saudis, for normalization if you follow social media if you follow even the official media print media television a discussion about israel and uh, a sort of a charming offensive by the israelis uh, in in saudi arabia using their sort of you know propaganda machine and i think there is a growing uh, j- uh, a number of saudis who really don't feel that that cause is theirs anymore simply because they had been subjected to all this. Um, But also you have the old guards who think that, you know, Jerusalem, you can't compromise on Jerusalem. You can't compromise on Palestinian rights and peace has to come with full rights for the Palestinians to have their own state with its uh, um, capital at Jerusalem. You heard about secret meetings between MBS and Netanyahu and uh, it, I mean, the whole world knew about it because the Israeli press reported it, but the Saudis felt like they had to react. They denied it, but then they sent uh, turkil Faisal, the ex-director of Saudi intelligence to Bahrain uh, for a conference and he declared that they object to normalization if Israel doesn't respect the rights of Palestinians. So to counter the the leaks from the Israeli press, they had to make a statement that they absolutely object to a a peace treaty that doesn't take into account the initial Arab initiative for peace with Israel.
0: Okay, so there's a question about the important uh, uh, topic of uh, women in Saudi Arabia. If the reforms that have taken place uh, are considered to attack, in inverted commas, the protection of women in the, you know, the bargain of patriarchy, what is the position of of these women? Would they rather go back to a more conservative society in order to to, to have their rights, uh, albeit limited, uh, insured?
1: Uh, you, uh, do you mean the, um, I can't see the uh, um, uh, question, do you mean the exiled women or the w- women in Saudi Arabia? Oh, I think I the, the intention
0: the is women in Saudi Arabia, yeah.
1: So women in Saudi Arabia. I think at the moment, you know, there, there is a kind of diversity of women. And some women uh, really enjoyed the reforms. You know, I have relatives who are driving their cars, taking their kids f- for an outing. And uh, they are sort of living a so-called normal life. But of course, they can't uh, voice any opinion or a critical uh, uh, opinion. Definitely, it's not allowed. Uh, but other women resent the openness of Saudi Arabia and uh, they are uh, sort of shielding themselves from the impact of, of the opening of Saudi Arabia. But I must say, you know, the pandemic had put an end to some of the high uh, uh, highly publicized uh, events where men and women could dance in the squares of Riyadh and, and also have the um, a tourist uh, flux into Saudi Arabia. I mean, nobody's traveling at the moment. What will happen when we start having hundreds of tourists coming to visit the archaeological sites that are promoted by influencers from australia and canada and other countries and, and start behaving in ways that do not conform to the sense to the sensitivity of the local population um, you know we we don't know and um, it's very difficult to say that you know western tourists will be uh, you know living uh, going to as tourists to Saudi Arabia and enjoying all the full, uh, you know, experience of being a Western tourist in a a country like Saudi Arabia. I think the security of those tourists will become an issue uh, that the government would worry about uh, and the tourists themselves. But at the moment, you know, with all these plans, uh, which were part of Vision 2030 are on hold because, you know, I can't see a flux of tourists arriving in Saudi Arabia in huge numbers.
0: Okay, so there's another question about an important regional uh, issue. Um, It comes from uh, Ray. How do you see Saudi involvement in the war in Yemen changing with the arrival of the Biden administration?
1: I think the Saudis will be under a lot of pressure by the Biden administration to uh, um, uh, end this war that has gone for five years. And um, uh, it has precipitated a humanitarian crisis that is unseen in, in that region. Um, so I think Biden has uh, uh, some uh, um, influence, uh, especially if he puts pressure and links it to um, the, uh, 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 links the sale of arms to Saudi Arabia to Uh, Saudi Arabia stopping that war and possibly paying uh, compensation for the the, uh, crisis and the damage that it had caused. I think Biden uh, now with Congress also in the hands of Democrats, we will find that it's easier for him to pass this kind of legislation uh, to make uh, U.S. support to Saudi Arabia conditional on Saudi Arabia doing certain things. The carte blanche that uh, Donald Trump had given to Mohammed bin Salman is over now, I think. But Biden will be a realist. He is not gonna rock the boat at a time when he has to mend his own house. Uh, so uh, I think the expectation should be uh, tempered. I mean, I know the media has a tendency to sort of exaggerate the change. Um, let's not forget that Obama, uh, sorry, the war uh, on Yemen Took place under the presidency of a Democrat, uh, Barack Obama. And Barack Obama sold more arms to Saudi Arabia than any other American president, simply because his presidency came after the 2008 um, uh, financial crisis. So, you know, to say that we are having this black and white and Biden is going to be the liberator, Biden is going to be the one who will sort it all out. I think us academics take these kind of exaggerated headlines with a pinch of salt. <laughs> you, have to, you have to look at the long durée of, of the record rather than just come under the spell of the media hype.
0: the long durée, of course, doesn't fit in with the, uh, the concept of long durée doesn't fit in with the world of uh, uh, Twitter, does it? Um, well, okay.
1: exactly. I think that's the whole <laughs> uh, I think uh, long durée doesn't really uh, feature in any kind of social media. It's the immediate okay. uh, gratification uh, uh, you know, perspective. Of...
0: Okay, so Shireen Hassan uh, asked from Jerusalem, congratulations on your new book. How do you assess the relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and the religious and the clerics in the wake of the new reforms, were basically taken without their prior approval. Do you expect that uh, Bin Salman will be forced to make compromises uh, to assuage their uh, dissatisfaction with his cosmetic reforms?
1: I think the religious clerics in Saudi Arabia had been emasculated, deprived mm. of their power, their member, you know, their uh, pulpit, uh, uh, and they—they uh, they are state functionaries now. They cannot and do not dare challenge any decision that Mohammed bin Salman had taken. And it's interesting again to talk about the fatwa and the long durée. We all remember their infamous fatwas about how women. Uh, if if women drive will damage their ovaries and that was under Saudi kings and it it found its place in social media and on Saudi media. We know uh, how they used to tell us that uh, you know you have to uh, uh, realize that uh, women put themselves and society in danger if they drove cars and the moment the uh, announcement was made that women can drive they switched their fatwa and suddenly they revamped themselves, uh, presenting themselves as the great, you know, enlightened Muslim scholars. So um, at the moment, uh, the Wahhabi movement in general is dormant. And Mohammed bin Salman had put it in its own place again, like his grand Father Ibn Saud had done in 1927, and his uncle King Faisal had done since he became king in 1964. But this doesn't mean that the Wahhabi movement is vanished. The Wahhabi movement remains; it's dormant. It's been there for like 300 years, and Mohammed bin Salman needs it, you know. Ironically, so to give you examples. Uh, when uh, Mohammed bin Salman and his father launched the war in Yemen, they got a, a Wahhabi religious uh, scholar, Mohammed al-Arafi, to go to the southern border and inflame the courage and imagination of the soldiers by calling the war on Yemen a jihad against the infidels, the infidels being the Zaidi Houthis. Uh, so the same sectarian discourse was invoked in Yemen. Um, And at the same time, when Mohammed bin Salman faces a kind of agitation or a kind of protest, then the Mufti can actually say that um, uh, demonstrations are haram in Islam. But to give you a more recent one, under Mohammed bin Salman, um, uh, during the crisis with Qatar, the Wahhabis uh, or the head of the Wahhabi movement, the Mufti of Saudi Arabia, Aziz Al-Sheikh, and the whole family of the Al-Sheikh issued a statement saying, uh, uh, depriving the Emir of Qatar from his Bani Tamim genealogy and saying that, you know, they don't have a record of the Emir of Qatar and his family belonging to them because they also come from the Bani Tamim Uh, uh, a tribe in Arabia. So using that kind of uh, initiative to discredit Tamim of Qatar by relying on uh, the Wahhabi Mufti to say that Tamim is not a member of his family or his tribe. So the Wahhabi movement is there, but now it, it, it can be used selectively depending on the political context.
0: Okay. Uh, We're out of time. Thank you very much, Madawi, and uh, good luck with the book. And uh, uh, thank you to all who uh, took part for your questions. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, you, Ian. And I'm sorry I couldn't answer all the questions on the screen in the Q&A. There were lots of them, and I hope there will be another opportunity. And thank you very much to the Middle East Centre and to you, Ian.
0: Sure going to Bye bye.